Hello and welcome to the control and the variable. Um, today's episode, as well as probably the next few episodes, we will be following a slightly different format. You may be able to hear the difference in our quality um, of sound and everything like that. And that is because of the COVID-19 quarantine that we are all in. I'm living in London whilst Sarah is living kind of just outside London and we are unable to record as we normally do. So the audio might be a little bit different and also um, we will be recording the paper sections separately from one another. So I think that some of you might enjoy that. You won't hear my, oh, fab, ah, yes, and then other stupid questions. So we still hope that you guys will enjoy listening to the podcast. Please feel free to share any of your quarantine stories with us um, and we'll share those at the end. Um, And we hope that you're all doing well, you're doing safe, and let's get on with today's podcast. Okay, fab. So, episode four today, um, I found a paper that I actually didn't like. Um, I thought it was a bit of a stupid paper, (laughs) to be honest. Um, So I think I'll go second today. Sarah, tell me all about the paper that you found for this week. (laughs) It's not so much a paper, but it's some research that's been done recently, and it's, I've seen a news article about it. Okay. And it piqued my interest, so... This is about a universal flu vaccine. So this has been talked about for years and years. There's always a joke that you'll get it in the next five years. Oh, news just in, literally just now, uh, the World Health Organization has now considered coronavirus a pandemic. Oh. So go back to episode two if you want to know what a pandemic is. (laughs) Um, But also, that's pretty scary now. (laughs) Gosh. Okay, sorry, back to which I think highlights the need for a universal flu vaccine. Uh, yeah, yes. very on topic. On, we're so on brand, Sarah. I know, <laughs> just so relevant. <laughs> okay, go on, carry on, sorry. So there's always this joke that a universal flu vaccine will be in the next five years, and people have been saying that for decades now. So this company, Seek, spelled S-E-E-K, Seek, <laughs> have developed their version of the universal flu vaccine because there's multiple people doing it all at the same time. Um, There's there's a single dose vaccine named flu with a V on the end. So I think we both agree that it would be flu five, not pronounced flu V. Yeah, but then I just Googled it and I'm like, aren't, I think Roman numerals have to be capital letters. So I think actually you were correct. Is it not a capital letter? No, I don't think it is. Sorry for that sound, that was the laptop scraping against the table. Yeah, that was my <laughs> fault, I apologise. I was a bit, um, what's the word, over in, like, over... Enthusiastic. Over enthusiastic, and I just kind of hit the thing. Um, yeah, apologies for that. Also, Sorry. I'm not sure about the sound. Okay, well, if there's any technical difficulties here today, I apologise. Yeah. We will okay. try our best. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. So, this phase two clinical trial, they had some promising results. They took 175 healthy participants. It was a double-blind placebo-controlled experiment. Oh, do you want to explain that very quickly to our listeners? Yes, so double-blind is essentially where neither the scientists nor the patients, or anyone involved actually, well, someone must 
Yeah, I think the company and like the statisticians. I think they're okay. like, no, actually, the statisticians aren't allowed to know either. So how do they find out? I don't know. They how... literally peel the label off dramatically <laughs> and find out what like they've you, been taking. Like you know how in exam papers you write your code and then you write your name on the bit that you fold over. Yeah. Like maybe it's like that. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Okay. Well, either way, this is double blind, so that means nobody knows what they're getting. They don't know if they're getting a placebo. Which is just nothing. Yeah, it's usually like a sugar pill or yeah. something. Or if they're actually getting the treatment. And this is so you can't have bias. So sometimes a scientist might really want their vaccine to work. So they could be biased. Or sometimes the patients can feel like that they're getting better. Even though they're not just as a placebo effect. Yeah, the whole idea of placebo is... It's so interesting because it's a psychological thing more than it's a physical thing. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you read the book, Bad Science, is it Bad Science? Good Science, Bad Science, or one of them. I'll put the link in the description. Um, but yeah, that's that explains the whole placebo thing quite well. That's the only chapter I'd personally read from that book. I found the book quite pretentious. But <laughs> that is, that's a good uh, chapter to read. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah, quick book review in here too. Wow. (laughs) So the results of this trial suggested that the vaccine increases antibodies produced against flu strains, which is pretty cool. That's what it's supposed to do, and it did it. Yeah. So, So, So is there like an area of homology between like every single flu that we know of? Well, and then it turns. We're going to get onto that. You read my mind. So, um, but firstly, this was just sort of, phase two is a safety trial. Yes. To see if, you know, it's tolerable in humans, if there's any side effects, so it's well tolerated. And as a sort of bonus, they saw that it increased antibodies against flu, and they were detected up to six months after they took this single-dose vaccine. Oh, single, nice. Yes. So, um, in a traditional vaccine the flu influenza it mutates all the time which is why you get a new vaccine every year for flu and it's essentially a race scientists have to predict the strains that are going to be most prevalent that year and then make a vaccine with like the most common ones so that you get immunity from all these common strains of flu but of course, you can't really get all of them in yeah. one vaccine, which is why there was a need for a universal flu vaccine, sort of like a one-shot cures all. Will it take into consideration any um, like mutations that are yet to come? Like, have they predicted what kind of mutations can happen, and then in traditional vaccines? Or this... So, like, the reason why old vaccines don't work is because. And they yeah, they mutate. Yeah, so the vaccines almost act as like selective pressure on these flu influenza strains because oh, yeah. it's killing them, so they need to mutate to survive the vaccine and our immune systems. So it sort of is also pressuring or like forcing the flu to mutate. It already does rapidly in order to survive because of our immunity will eventually learn how to kill it. But I think these flu vaccines probably help drive that as well. So um, 
Traditionally, scientists have to construct a vaccine that targets multiple strains. The most common ones, they have to predict which ones are going to be really common. And then they have to make a new one every year. Whereas a universal vaccine would be a lot more simple in some of those. So this particular version of the universal vaccine made by the company Seek targets um, conserved areas of influenza that are common in all strains. So some areas mutate more than others. The conserved ones are really important to survival of the flu. Yeah. (laughs) So they don't really mutate that much. And they're a better target because of that, because they won't change. So with the selective pressure of a vaccine as well, even these conserved areas might mutate over time. So they've designed a few um, areas, conserved areas to target. I think it's four. Okay. So even if one area mutates, you've got oh. these four other backups. Three other backups. Three other back- yeah, yeah, yeah. backups um, to continue killing the virus. And That's also, quite promising. Yeah, and also you don't have to make a new one each year. Oh, yeah. And you don't have to make, like, hundreds of different antibodies. It's sort of like one antibody. Yeah. Conserved within all these strains because it doesn't mutate that often. So that way it's still efficacious even if one area mutates, which is good. So it should last longer than traditional vaccines too. Well, that's really interesting. I'd like to see where that goes from now on. It's next few trials and then... Yeah, so um, they're entering phase three now once they get funding. But it's important to note that this is, you know, a rat race. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's trying to be first. So there's another company called BeyondVax. Interesting name. Like Beyond, but with bio. Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I was reading it like, why have they put like Beyond? Like, what's that? I get the vaccine, vaccine, but like bio, but beyond. I'm definitely the target audience for those kind of names because I'm like, I love that. That's amazing. You're enjoying the puns. <laughs> yeah, because I went to this, um, I, I found this company, uh, Perspective Diagnostics. And they focus on like liver things, and they've got one um, kind of thing, and I think it's called hepatica. But the T I is the T one, which is what they like image or something in livers yeah. and stuff. Either way, I lo- it was really nice. It was like I like those kind of names. I love it. Like, yeah. you know, it was really good. I appreciate that. Points for those kind of companies because <laughs> it shows that they don't really take themselves too seriously, but also that their marketing team is good to be fair yeah because you read it and you know what they do yeah so this unlike all those other drug names that we've mentioned before <laughs> on the podcast of like what does that mean exactly they're just letters um is that it would they so i was just that? going to say there is another company already in phase three of their own universal vaccine and are expecting results at the end of 2020 ah so, so it's an exciting time yeah watch this space um that actually reminds me of you know when I asked you oh is that it? are you done um I went somewhere the other day and um we, everyone was like lining up to get food 
and I was like pouring my food whilst talking to this girl next to me and then you know just when you say politely like oh sorry am I in your way like what's the usual response it's usually like oh no it's okay right that's what normal people say (laughs) and I'm raising my voice because this girl like I was like oh yeah sorry oh sorry am I in your way she was like yeah Ooh, okay. Um, Bit savage. I didn't really know what to do. I was like, oh, <laughs> just wanted to like hide under a table and cry. It was um, it was quite sad. Um, so yeah, on to my uh, article. Um, I mentioned actually in a PhD interview uh, when they so PhD interviews they tend to ask oh so like what kind of reading have you done that's like not your topic and I was like well uh, I found a paper and it was saying that. Uh, for those people with cancer and are going through treatment, for those who sleep uh, less than four or five hours a night, they have an 8% increased risk of uh, cancer mortality, right? That was the paper that I read and I wrote it down and um, I mentioned it in my interviews and things like that. Um, and I couldn't find it today. So instead, <laughs> I found a paper. It's just disappeared. It's just, it's honestly disappeared off the face of the earth, which... Mm, Maybe they retracted it. Maybe. It was a recent article. But then also, like, I have a thing. Like, sometimes I sleep and I dream about... It came to you articles. in a vision. <laughs> yeah, it came to me in a dream. So let's just take that, you know, sleep a good amount of hours and you'll survive your cancer. Um, so instead, sorry, yeah, instead I found a paper titled Sleep Duration and the Risk of Cancer, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis Including Dose-Response Relationship. So, just to break that down, um, a meta-analysis is the combination of a range of multiple scientific studies. So they combine all of the data from multiple studies into one kind of big meta-analysis picture um, so that it not only has high statistical power in the results, um, but you can also like highlight other relationships uh, that might have been overlooked um, through these kind of meta-analyses. Analyses. Um, so... Yeah, the thing about doing loads of different studies is they are done in loads of different countries with loads of different types of people, minorities. Well, minorities are, I guess, in one country, but what's the opposite of a minority? Majority? The majority? (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, so different types of people, basically. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, different types of people, different types of lifestyle, ages, ages, everything. everything. So it's meta-analysis, analyses, um, combine all of that information into one kind of block bit of information that you can use. So anyway, this particular analysis used 65 studies um, from over 25 articles, which led to about over 1.5 million participants and 86 thousand cancer cases um, this is particularly important I think to highlight that one in two people will get cancer in the UK um, at some point in their life which is 50% people that is a very high statistic yeah extremely high statistic um, so yeah understanding the uh, causes and potential uh, lifestyle new like kind of things that can contribute to you getting cancer is is probably good to think about and look and look into 
Um, so uh, <laughs> this uh, paper said that there is no association <laughs> between long or short sleep duration with a cancer risk. Good to know. Yeah, which is good to know. So like sleep as much or as little as you want. It doesn't really change your cancer risk unless you were Asian. Um, oh. <laughs> now, when I was reading this paper, I didn't really know what they meant by Asian because I know that here in the UK, when we say Asian, we tend to mean like South, Central, Asia, yeah. like Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Nepalese, Bengali kind of thing. Um, whereas I know that Americans, when they say Asia, they say like Chinese. China, Japan, Korea, those kind of countries. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't really know whether I should be scared or not, based on, <laughs> based on that. But um, the subgroup analysis basically showed that shorter sleep uh, led to a higher risk of cancer in Asians. Um, and a long sleep actually increases the risk of colorectal cancer. I don't know whether that might have something to do with the fact that, like, lying down, you're kind of, like, a lot of pressure on your butt during mm. that time. So, on your colon, sorry, I should be more accurate with my words. But, yeah, so I'm not really sure about that. But there's no dose-response effect. So, dose-response would be, like, as you increase sleep, you increase your chances of cancer. There's nothing like that. Um, but interestingly, there is a page on the NHS website. Now, the NHS website occasionally occasionally put out um, articles summarising other kind of big tabloidy articles. Um, so I know that a lot of people get their medical advice from less than adequate papers. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Sensationalist writing. Exactly. I'm not sure how I feel about this article because the first reference the bloody Daily Mail. So I'm like, oh gosh. But to be fair, kudos to the NHS for understanding that some people do get their information yeah, from those do, kind of papers and they've... They can, do correct it. They, they correct it, absolutely. Um, so yeah, if you ever read an article, I suppose, on in some kind of newspaper that you're not entirely trustworthy of, um, yeah, go to the NHS website and see if they've written um, an email. Or, sorry, an article about that. So, um, it was talking about a, oh, this is really funny, it was talking about um, a research uh, thing that happened back in the US, where they used uh, 1,600 adults, and in the 1990s, they watched these people sleep once, calculated how much they slept, and then kind of tracked their health and up until 2017. Wow. Right, yeah, I know. So, so many flaws already. <laughs> um, and so they, they realised that those who slept less than six hours on that specific night uh, had uh, like a greater chance of heart disease, diabetes, and some other things. But I didn't read any more because I was like, who determines that based on one night of sleep? Second of all, they did the same kind of statistics and, uh, I don't know, modelling, I suppose, with, uh, like, a sleep diary of them, like, multiple... Like, more information of how they slept over, like, normal sleeping pattern, and they found no effect. So, clearly, these people, they used the information that they wanted to use to get the result that they wanted to publish. Yeah. Which is so, like, it's so problematic on, like, oh, gosh. It's so annoying because... um, yeah, they've clearly published, and you know, the more names you have to your like, the more papers you have to your name, like the more kind of prestigious you are yeah. in in science. So you know, 
that's not good. Um, so yeah, that's that really. And as usual, the British media back in 2017 focused on like the very sellable titles. So they didn't mention those limitations of the study, which I'll repeat again, were artificial sleep conditions, only one measurement of sleep, uh, and the fact that they didn't get the same results when they took into account normal sleeping patterns. That being said, you know, the title of that, you know, those who sleep less, uh, live less, I suppose. Um, it's kind of obvious, really, that if you sleep well, you generally have better health. Yeah, uh, yeah. just in general. Just in general. Um, I don't know whether this paper took into account, like, mental health and things like that, but that's also, like, very different, because I think, you know, when you're depressed, you tend to sleep a bit more. Depends. You okay. could, uh, I you guess it depends. on the as well. Yeah, oh yeah, that's very true. So, yeah, I guess the take-home message from this is don't use the numbers that you want to use because they look good. Um, totally throwing shade at this paper. Um, I mean, you, if I picked up that paper once I got to the part where they said they took one sleep recording, I would have put it back down again. <laughs> you put it straight back down, but you, that's only in the actual paper, the peer-reviewed paper. This is, it was peer-reviewed, like, I wow. don't, who peer-reviewed that and thought, yeah, that's a, that's, okay. that's, that's a good study, that is. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, uh, yeah, the British media didn't even mention any of the limitations. I assume that the NHS are referring to the Daily Mail when they were talking about that. So, yeah, the only thing the Daily Mail provide is a good TV guide. Not good science <laughs> information. <laughs> And now we're going to move on to um, the mini biography section of today's podcast. And today, who are we going to talk about? Mary Curie. Mary Curie. So a bit of background about Mary Curie. She was born on the 7th of November, 1864 in Warsaw, Poland. And she passed away on the 4th of July, 1934 of aplastic anemia, which we'll get onto later. She was born as Marie Sklodowska um, and then she later on married Pierre Curie and then she took his name later on. Yeah so um, I think out of all the female scientists she will be the one that people can name probably. Yeah for sure. Um, She's best known for her work discovering some elements Polonium and radium. Yeah, polonium she named after Poland, her home. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so she was technically a chemist. That was the course that she took and her main um, subject, I suppose. Um, But she's most well known for her pioneering research on radioactivity, which is actually a word that she created herself before... Uh, Marie Curie became famous nobody had the word radioactivity that was a word that she coined and she made so the Shakespeare of science some could say um she is also the first woman to ever win a Nobel Prize um and not only win it once but she won it twice um she was the first woman to become a professor at the University of Paris and she's also the first woman to be entombed on her own merits at the Pantheon in Paris, which is where they bury people. Like, nice. I think it's like a cathedral thing. 
I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, so she was from a very academically inclined family. So her sister was in the medical field, her parents were established teachers, her cousin actually worked with Dmitry Mendeleev, which if my Ooh. history of science uh, is correct, he was the guy who created the periodic table of elements. So that's quite fun. Um, and another one of her relatives uh, was a mathematician, like some fancy mathematician. And like, I keep on reading when we learn about these older people from, you know, back when a lot of people dated their cousins. And it's really, it makes me feel quite uncomfortable, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> so anyway, she went to the University of Paris back in 1891. And um, she apparently focused so hard uh, on her studies, oh, this is something that Wikipedia wrote. She focused so hard on her studies that sometimes she forgot to eat. I think that's just like borderline the life of a uni student, and also something <laughs> along the lines of like high functioning anxiety. That's very much what that sounds like to me. She became a student in her husband's lab, um, <laughs> where they were very affectionate, which mm, slightly inappropriate and unprofessional in my opinion. <laughs> But um, they uh, they got married and they focus... Oh, yeah, we won't focus on her love story because it's not a gossip podcast. But, oh, fun fact, she wrote she wore a dark blue outfit to her wedding, which then later on became her lab outfit. That's very weird. Okay. <laughs> it's very weird. I might turn up to the lab in a wedding dress next time when we after you know lockdown's over i'll just turn up in a wedding dress that'd be my you gotta get married coat. first sarah <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh yeah that's a while off i think <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so back to her lab work she and her husband looked into uranium rays and uh they noticed that it didn't require any external energy to emit some form of Ray. Um, obviously, we're not physicists, we don't fully understand this, but she created uh, this hypothesis that radiation isn't an interaction of molecules, but it's it somehow comes from the atoms themselves. Um, and neither her nor her husband were aware of the dangers of radiation exposure. So that's good. Yeah. So, so they got radiation sickness as we now know it but obviously they didn't know what that was back then so they started feeling quite sick and tired and they had no idea what it was but it's because they were constantly around this radioactive stuff yeah all the time apparently they would just carry radioactive things in their pockets and <laughs> you know all those other things that just oh they make you so like uncomfortable now to hear but yeah it's crazy uh, by 1898, the two of them, so her husband and herself, had published literature on the existence of polonium and radium, um, and they tried to isolate those elements <clears throat> later on. Uh, joint and separately, they published 32 papers, which, to That's be crazy. honest, I write it down, but I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether 32 is a large amount or not very many. I'm not sure. I think it's probably, that's probably a good thing, right? Because they used to have to handwrite stuff back in those days yeah I can imagine that was quite a lot in those times hmm. probably quite a lot now I just yeah it sounds like a lot <laughs> um she was a very patriotic um lady 
And uh, during the second, no, mm, first, first, or, first World War, yep, thank you. <laughs> during the <laughs> First World War, she was so patriotic that she tried to donate the gold from her Nobel Prize towards a national effort, but the um, French uh, people said, no, you keep your gold. And But she was trying to encourage people to um, give their gold towards the national effort, so... I know oh, that if I nice. won a Nobel Prize, it would never leave, like, my shelf. <laughs> I probably yeah. wouldn't donate it. <laughs> it would constantly be around my neck, just like an accessory <laughs> at all times. <laughs> um, actually, in the First World War as well, she helped to make these mobile x-ray machines so that she could diagnose injuries near the battlefront, which would save a lot of time and soldiers which is, you know, pretty cool. Yeah. Help out and, and then after the war, she continued working and, yeah, carried on to win multiple awards and other prizes, as well as her Nobel Prizes. Yes. Yeah. She did really well, actually. She was able to encourage further generations of women to go into science uh, by being a professor at her university and teaching, which was technically her husband's job, but when he passed away... Oh, he passed away in the most tragic way. You'd have thought, oh, maybe radiation, but no, he was crushed to death underneath a horse and cart. And apparently that really, like, affected her and her work. But yeah, she took his job in the end, so... Conspiracy? <laughs> Not that affected them. It's all right. <laughs> Um, there's actually a film, it should be coming out like this month or next month about her life. It's called Radioactive, so it's a good time if you want to find out more about that. Yeah, that sounds really good. Um, hopefully we've given people a little bit of background information so that when they watch... Oh no, we've probably given spoilers now, haven't we? Yeah, they, now they know the whole story of the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might not have to watch it, but if you want to, you can. <laughs> They probably tell the story better than us. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> okay, now on to our favourite part of the podcast, which, you know, we've had a bit of mixed feedback as to whether our stories are actually funny, but we enjoy recording these bits, so we're going to carry <laughs> on doing them. Um, it's funny lab stories, but because we're all in quarantine, I thought we'd expand the the remits of what a funny story is to quarantine stories um but do you want to start with this one sarah quarantine stories quarantine story lab story it doesn't matter i'm on the spot now oh okay okay <laughs> well then you can you can think while i tell my really stupid one so um i'm on a group chat with um so it's me my parents my sister and then we're really good friends with this other family and so it's uh, the two parents from there and their two daughters, um, who are like my best friends. Um, and it's, uh, it was, I think I got a, a text very late one day and it was, actually I'm going to find it so that I can read it to you because it was very funny. I think the thing about WhatsApp, and I don't know whether it's just like Asian people on WhatsApp, but there's so many funny things like, oh, you should be doing this and this to cure yourself from coronavirus um so that's been quite funny um okay so it goes here um i have a doctor in the family 
who has been given information from Vienna's laboratory studying COVID-19. Didn't know, number one, that there was a laboratory called Vienna. And <laughs> Vienna's laboratory, like the city of Vienna only has one laboratory, um, had a vast majority of people who died of it. Okay, they had ibuprofen. Okay, so there's a whole ibuprofen thing. I'm not sure about that. Okay, also wear a mask while out. That's pretty good advice. No social contact. Another pretty good bit of advice. Drink loads of hot but not warm water. I wonder what happens if it's hot. Put a pinch of turmeric, a bit of garlic, and just one fourth of a clove, and just slowly uh, sip on the hot water, um, and it will cure your coronavirus um but it will leave a sour taste in your mouth for a couple of weeks anyway i read this and i was like what even is this piece of information that is being shared um and so i decided to low-key troll <laughs> so i replied back you know what happens if i put in a whole clove will i get overdosed and <laughs> my auntie genuinely replied back saying well that's just the amount that's recommended i assume it's because cloves are quite concentrated <laughs> and i just i've really struggled to um keep sane with a lot of the weird messages that keep on coming in um with potential cures for uh COVID-19 yeah there's a lot of fake news going around there about is. it did, did you hear of the story of oh I don't know people have been like trolling and recording voice notes saying oh um I have a cousin who works for the Ministry of Defence and they're making a massive lasagna in oh, Wembley yeah. Stadium <laughs> That was a good one. That was a really funny one. I enjoyed that. I don't think anyone took those ones seriously, but that was really funny. And then um, apparently in competition with France, France decided that they were going to make a massive garlic bread in the Euro tunnel. Ooh, that would be much better than a giant lasagna there. Yeah, I know, right? Lasagna's not even that great. <laughs> no, I don't even think so either. Oh, um, my mum's one's That just good. reminded me, actually, if you were... Is that your story? Oh, yeah, yeah, come on. Okay, it just reminded me of something. So with all this, um, like, misleading information going around on Facebook and WhatsApp groups, there was this one that my um, elderly auntie, in from she's from Malta, um, she posted on her thing. And they tried to make it look so official, like, this evidence comes from this journal of virology or whatever yeah and I was like okay whatever so I continued reading it and it was like the virus cannot survive in acidic conditions I was like okay so far I, I probably don't disagree with that yeah <laughs> and then um it was like to help cure and prevent getting the virus you should eat these like different fruits and I was like oh god here we go and it was like eat these acidic um acidic things like no sorry it was um eat these alkaline things and then it started listing all these alkaline things that you can eat which would supposedly kill the virus and it was like lemon orange so instantly in my head I'm like but they're acidic what's going yeah. on like that doesn't make any sense and then they had the ph next to each um thing and they were completely wrong as well. They were like alkaline, but it was a lemon, which is acidic. <laughs> and you're just like, 
excuse me? But one of them said PH22. And then oh, I was uh... just like, excuse me. PH22. Yeah. But they tried to make it look so official by saying it came from this paper. And I'm just like, what? where's the like incentive to do that like yeah make really, up fake information because really that doesn't you... seem like it's benefiting anyone either like no. if you do fake news to sort of get your own agenda then at least you have a motive but just seemingly it just doesn't make any sense yeah what do these people have to um benefit from yeah that's very true unless they own lemon stalls or something like... <laughs> maybe they're a fruit and veg seller yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's a conspiracy theory at Sainsbury's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oh gosh. Yeah, there's been a lot of weird information going on around line. And um, I understand that, like, the lasagna things in that, that's funny. Um, it's just to make people laugh a little bit. But the other ones, yeah, I don't quite understand. People need to start getting a life and stop spreading weird information because, you know, <laughs> some people would believe it. Yeah. Even if it's satire, there'll be idiots that, you know, believe it. Apparently one of my uh, sister's friends from work genuinely believed the lasagna thing. So, <laughs> yeah. And apparently it was going to get delivered to everyone's houses via drones or something. I don't quite understand. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, Radio Public and Breaker. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are control and variable. You can also follow us on our own personal Twitters of Sonia underscore Shinma. And Sarah Muscat with a three on the end. Because Sarah Muscat one and two were taken. Yes. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please leave a review. And we hope you enjoyed it. You'll hear us again next time. Bye.